Hi, I'm Chris Hutchings and I'm your host. Welcome to the 10Q Interview Podcast. Today's episode sees me joined by Mr. Ben Barber-Smith, who is a very, very good guy. I took a lot away from this one, as I do most of my podcasts, but this one in particular was really good and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it too. If this is the first time you're here, I wish you a very, very warm welcome. And as I said a minute ago, I really hope you enjoy this podcast. If you do, let me know your favorite bit via any social channel. Uh, It's 10Q interview everywhere. And most importantly, it would mean the world to me if you hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. It would also mean a great deal to me, and Ben, I assume, for that matter, is if you share this episode far and wide, there's loads of value in it, um, lots of interesting bits, and I'm sure that when you listen to it, you'll think of someone in particular who could really benefit from hearing it. So let them know. Now, on to the podcast. I'm trying to do my introductions slightly different to people, and my theory behind it is that I don't want to just talk about you from what I've read on Twitter or you know Wikipedia or articles or et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to get guests to introduce themselves. And the way I'd like to do it is if you imagine that you meet a stranger in a bar or a coffee shop or somewhere and they ask you what you do, who you are, what you're about, what is it you're most likely to say to them? I run my own business writing software, I think is the one that I go for. Uh, And from that, you can gauge from the reaction on their face whether they care or even know what writing software might imply and they want more detail or whether that's plenty for them and the fact I run my own business is good enough. Do you feel people's perceptions of that have changed over the years? Now, you know, from a coding perspective, is it more, do you get different responses these days than you did maybe sort of five years ago? Absolutely. Um, I mean, even even longer than that, it used to be more like, oh, right, you make websites, do you? Or something like that. Yeah. Um, now people, I think, assume it's apps or something along those lines. Uh, no one really ever thinks about the true stuff that goes on with the back-end services or whatever, but... Um, no, people tend to get what writing software means now for the most part, even if they just think it means writing apps. So they tend to be a little bit more interested uh, and people are more supportive now than ever, I think, of running your own business. Uh, I've found that yeah. that gets a lot more interest now and they assume it's to do with COVID or to do with becoming a parent or something. Um, but it's interesting <laughs> to see how that changes. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I think <clears throat> entrepreneurship used to be kind of a bit of a dirty word, didn't it? Or you sort of, not many people did it, but I think, access to it now and awareness of it now is is people's perceptions of that just changed dramatically i think they were changing anyway probably pre-covid but during covid i think even more so i think yeah absolutely Uh, i think people also assume a bit more success now i don't know if that's a function of getting older or a function of the changing world but people now when you say that you run your own business they don't assume that you're struggling to get by and you've just got an idea that you've been working on in your bedroom they tend to assume you're actually running a business um, which yeah. is, is quite a refreshing change, less on the defensive and more on the positive. You see, well, you, Okay, so you see that as a good thing, do you? Absolutely, uh, because I think there's a lot of success out there, a lot of opportunity for success. Uh, having quit my job and gone on to start my own business, I've been amazed at how much opportunity is out there and how much money yeah. is out there. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy to get hold of, but there's a lot more possibility than I think we see from inside the job. So the fact that people seem to be becoming more aware of that and assuming that people will be successful if they're running their own business is, is a good thing. No, 100%, 100% agree with that. I, I, it's funny, I, I think because, I mean, you're from a similar, I guess from the tech side and awareness side to me, and my wife, I've been trying to get this across to my wife for a long, long time. She, she's a solicitor 
so she hasn't had um uh, she hasn't seen this side of the world this side of the business and i keep trying to convey to her that exact same message but slowly i think it's coming across you know watching a few more youtube videos and and getting her ingrained in this side of the world i think she's starting to see it but i i 100 agree with you i think there's so much opportunity out there and again like you said it's not easy by any stretch but i think when people start equating what they earn in their real jobs to what they potentially could earn or what they have to do to get that same sort of money is 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 incredible really i think there's nothing like seeing somebody else do it as well right to actually convey the truth of this um, yeah, it was only once people had seen me quit and then get consulting gigs and then start writing my own software, be able to sell my own apps, be able to start businesses and actually make money out of this that they see, oh, this is possible. It's not just something that happens in Silicon Valley. It's not just something you can do if you're yep. this elite business person or coder. It is a real thing that real people can do. Uh, I think you have to see it in reality to believe it. Yeah, I think that's probably pretty much on the money. I guess the way social media is and and the way entrepreneurship is growing, I think people are seeing it more and more, right? Absolutely. Okay, so we know what you do now, but when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grow up? Uh, weirdly, and I promise you I'm not making this up, I wanted to be doing exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, or close enough, right? Like when I was a kid, I had three things I really wanted to do. Something with computers, like honestly, that was as far as I went. Something with computers, uh, something that makes okay. me money, uh, so that I can be a millionaire one day. I'm not there yet, but you know. Uh, and ideally something to do with maths because I liked maths. This is like as a 10 year old kid. Um, so in my head that turned into, I should be a programmer or I should be an accountant. Uh, looking back, I think I didn't have a good understanding of accountancy and it's not the same things as doing sums in your math class when you're age 10. Um, no. But you know, I think the programming was pretty accurate because I was spending time in my bedroom with like, this is pre-internet, this is, on like old school uh, little CRT monitor and all that, um, coding way out of books, and I loved it. And actually, it's not a million miles away from what I'm doing now. So, I've I feel like I've kind of nailed it, living the kiddie dream. That's amazing. I when I sort of wrote this question down, I I assumed, and you know what they say about assumptions, but I assume most people or boys actually. Let me be totally sexist and generalized mass, mass generalization here, but I assumed a lot of boys would want to be sports related so you saying that story i think is fascinating actually just it's, it's good to sort of prove me wrong actually well i think this is partly about what you do as a kid right as a 10 year old i was terrible yes. at sports i was terrible at football but i loved okay playing on my computer and programming and i used to make my own little games and i had this dream as a 10 year old that i was going to make a game i was going to put it on floppy disks and i was going to sell it at the end of our driveway to people passing by on the street and I was going to make my first million that way. Obviously, none of that came to pass, but uh, that, that was what I wanted to do as a kid at that age, right? And I think it stuck with it. Maybe if I'd been a better sports person, uh, I would be more uh, disappointed now that I'm not an athlete, but who knows? Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe my, my assumptions just come... I was, I was chatting to someone the other day and sport was very much a big part of the activities you could do when you were a kid. I mean... I think I'm a little bit older than you, but coding wasn't a thing, you know, computers, like the first sort of consoles were just coming around when I was a kid. So my, my generation or you know, that age group was like sport was a thing. It was the activity that you did at the weekends or after school or whatever. And there wasn't really anything else to do. And I think as I mean, I look at Twitch now and I think 
oh my days like if twitch had been around when i was sort of 17 16 17 or whatever playing tony hawks and fifa and the rest of it oh that would have been the dream absolutely getting paid to play video games you'd, you'd have thought you're crazy wouldn't you absolutely yeah. okay so that's lovely that you are doing what you wanted to do i think it's probably quite rare in this day and age i think it probably is um and it didn't come easily like i've been i think i've spent most of my adult life well most of my life since I was 10, wanting to do this uh, and struggling yeah. in various ways to make it a reality. I had a few failed attempts at starting side businesses while I was at university. Um, I had one that actually was quite successful for a year and then died out, but it took a long time to get to the stage of this being my life um, to the point where yeah. most of my professional career before I quit to go solo and be an entrepreneur, I was doing things with computers, but I wasn't programming i wasn't engineering i wasn't doing the coding that i wanted to do um yeah. and it took a lot of repeated decisions to take the risk or to go further or to learn something new or to spend evenings and nights teaching myself new technologies before i got here right like it didn't just happen it yeah. took a lot of commitment over the years i think okay well, i think we'll cover that in some of the later questions but if, if we move on to the next one now so getting a bit deep what has been the most pivotal moment in your life it's a weird one. Okay, well, I was at university. I really wanted to go into like nuclear energy or you know, sustainable energy as, a, as a, a career. But I had taken the wrong degree. I took physics, and I thought that was going to be the right degree for this thing. And actually, no, physics okay. just means you can be a quant or you can be a weapons manufacturer or you can go work for an arms company. It doesn't really mean you can do renewable energy. You should have done engineering if you wanted to do that. Yeah, it's not quite, not quite the same thing, is it? <laughs> exactly and I failed to get all the jobs I wanted so I was left in this situation of oh, I haven't got a job yet I'm graduating soon I need to get something under my belt and I don't know what to do uh, and I ended up just taking an interview uh, that a recruiter had set me up for with a small uh, like fintech company in Oxford I didn't really want the job I didn't like the idea of being a it was a sort of half sales half technical and I didn't want to be a salesperson okay. I hated the idea of it but my uh, girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was moving to Oxford. Um, I needed a job in that area if we were <clears> going to live together. So I thought, all right, fine, I'll go. At uh, the last minute, I thought, you know what? I don't want this job. I'm not going to go. Screw it. I'm just going to stay at home. And I called up the recruiter and told him that. And I made that decision based on the fact that I couldn't find a belt to put that I could fit into. I'd put on loads of weight and I couldn't find a belt that would fit on my suit. So I just said, oh, I can't go. Uh, and he talked me off the ledge somehow. I don't know why. Uh, and I thought, oh, fine, all right, fine, I'll go. Ran my way to the train station at the last second and decided to just give it my all. And I got the job. And actually, that job was part of moving to Oxford with my girlfriend and hopefully my future with her. That was part of the experience I learned in that small company is what gave me my path into my career at Google later on. Like that sort of decision of should I go to this interview or not hinged on whether I could find a belt that fit me as a like, fat student who had put on loads of weight recently but making that different decision changed everything if i hadn't gone to that interview i don't think i'd be in the position i am today which i, I just would never have believed that was the pivotal moment of my life but it was do you know what the, this question out of the 10 i ask is my favorite question and it is my favorite question for exactly answers like that like i think it's an amazing amazing story um where, where were you living at the time 
Uh, I was living, I was still at university, so I went to the University of Warwick, so I was living in Coventry at the time, so it was like an hour's train journey mm-hmm. away, a 20 minute sweaty walk to the train station on a hot day, uh, again as an unfit, overweight person, um, and I was just looking for any excuse not to go and get the sales job, basically. Um, yeah. To this day, I don't remember what the recruiter said to me, but I'm so glad that he talked me off the ledge, uh, and it's, it's weird thinking back that that is the moment that my life changed from one direction to another. It's, well, what's weird is that guy is probably sitting somewhere in his office or his armchair right this second, not knowing the impact he's had on someone's life. Absolutely. There's no way he could have foreseen. And, and if he hadn't have had that conversation, you know, you, you, you know, you and your girlfriend might not have lasted. You wouldn't have been where you are now. No, it's just it's one of those sliding doors moments, which I, I think is incredible. It really That's is. That's why it's my favorite like, pivotal moment thing to think about, because it was so minor and stupid. And yet had such a big impact. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know it's a podcast about you, not me at all. But my mind's similar. Like I, the first date I had with my wife, I almost didn't go because the fancy shoes I'd put on to wear that day for the date. I went out for a walk at lunchtime and got absolutely soaked, caught in like this monsoon rain. And my shoes were soaking, my feet were wet and it was horrible. And I almost, almost cancelled the date because I was just thought, I can't, I can't do it with these <laughs> What is it with us man-children who uh, almost changed the course of our lives because of some minor, like, clothing-related... Oh, it's, ridic- it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, we laugh about it to this day. You know, we, we talk about it regularly, actually. And it is. It's just the course... You, exactly as you said, the course of your life could be... I mean, it's just... It's, it's mind-blowing, really. But, um, yeah. That's, no, Ben, that's a great story, and I'm, and I'm glad you shared Between it. Between a you. short belt and wet shoes, uh, like minor clothing mishaps change everything. So you and I are both in it together, my man. Good, good. Okay, so the next question is number three. What is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received? Aside from the recruiter this telling a, you to go to an interview. This is a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is a tricky one, and I can't put it down to any particular phrase or person. Um, but in a general sense, it's, you can do it. My parents, uh, I feel like my entire life, my parents always told me I could do whatever I was trying to do. They always believed that I would succeed in whatever I was going for. Uh, even in, and almost especially in cases where they were not qualified to judge whether I would be able to do these things. They just had unconditional belief in it. And they said, you can do it, just try and you'll be able to do it. Uh, and that has baked itself into my subconscious to the point that now I just assume I'll be able to do whatever I try if I just I'll figure it yeah. out I'll be all right I'll give it a go um, and maybe that's silly um, but I I don't believe I'll be good at it I don't necessarily believe I'll be an expert at anything immediately but I always believe I could probably do it if I try um, and that honestly that just comes down to years of repetition and belief from my parents so I know that's not really advice, but it almost it's turned into advice in my head. It's turned into this advice of just try and you'll figure it out. No, I think I think I disagree. I think it's great advice. I, my, I saw two follow up questions. I guess is one: Do you think that they genuinely believed it, or do you think it was something that they tell to their kids because it's the right thing to say to a kid to give them that belief? I know that's a bit of a weird question, but this is going to sound really like bigging myself up so I don't mean it in that way but I think they genuinely believed it because I had I was quite a smart young okay. kid like as a, like a three-year-old or whatever I was quite smart and as a four-year-old I was just like doing my numbers earlier than other kids things like that silly things which don't really matter in a kid's yep. development 
But there were enough of those stacked early on that I think they actually believed I was smarter than average and they actually believed I was more capable than okay. average. Um, and looking back, maybe they didn't say you can do it about things like sports or areas where I wasn't very good at things. I don't know. I don't really remember either way. Um, but they did about intellectual pursuits and professional pursuits and things. Um, so I think they genuinely did believe it as well as it being the right thing to do. But I'll ask them next time I speak to them. Yeah, my, my second bit then is, um, do you pass on the same message to your kids as a result? Yes. Uh, yes, but they're young enough that at this point, I don't think they have any doubt on whether they can do things um except like get up to the next rung of the climbing frame okay so whenever they are in doubt on their abilities absolutely i try and pass it on but i don't think i've got to that stage in their development yet where they they doubt themselves or they need that that confidence and reassurance my kids are still at the age where they just believe everything's possible and they just go for it (laughs) Or, or maybe that means i've just built it into their psyche already right maybe that means i've already succeeded i don't know Wow, powerful, powerful. <laughs> uh, I, I certainly intend to pass it on. I want them to believe they can do anything and they shouldn't be limited by the world. No, and I think, I mean, I don't know if you agree, but I feel like now is <clears throat> the, the things that you can do now uh, with the resources out there that, you know, it's it's incredible what you can achieve now compared to what you could 5, 10, 20 years ago. Just, just through the, the resource that is available at your fingertips. Absolutely. Um, the like opportunities, abundance of opportunities is greater than ever. The resources available are wider than ever. Just the different ways of being creative yeah. are wider than ever. And ways to get rewarded for being creative exist more than ever before. So there's just so much opportunity to succeed. Yeah. Uh, I don't think anyone's got the excuse not to give their kids the message that you can do it. No, I agree. I think the, like, I think the you, this point you made there about being rewarded for creativity is important as well like you know the starving artist was always the cliche wasn't it when you know you can't make money out of art but now you can you can be creative and you can there are there are so many different ways to make money from those pursuits that i find fascinating actually i really do yeah absolutely okay so great advice from your parents next question then is what would you say is one of the most valuable lessons you've learned in life or some of if you have multiple I find this quite a a tricky question again because there's so many different angles you could take it but the one that stuck out to me was I think it's probably from this is so cliche I think it's probably from this right Um, I I read that like just after it came out and the message I took away from the four-hour work week was if you keep your costs low and if you're just trying to survive and you don't mind spending a bit less like that frees up your ability to to design your own life mm. um, and I know in Tim Ferriss's case that was about living in places with a low cost of living so your money goes further um, but I've just taken the core message to heart that if you can keep your costs low you can have so much more freedom and I am not a digital nomad I've never done that thing right I live in suburbia with my family in a nice home um, but we have always tried to keep our costs low uh, try and act as if we don't have great income even when I've been really really lucky and fortunate whether through Google uh, where I worked for several years or whether through consulting businesses or whatever uh, and just by having that approach I think we've given ourselves more freedom yeah um, that, that book's a funny one to me I mean I also read that and I it kind of I would agree it changed my life a little bit as well and I think what's really funny or amuses me the most is how many people have a negative uh, thought about that book 
and and most of it's from people who haven't read it properly and they go oh four hour work week what a load of rubbish you can't you know you've got to work harder than four hours a week but that's not what it's about it's about finding no. ways to be more efficient to create shortcuts that you know can can free you up and i'm sure you like me you know how hard it is running a business especially sort of on your own or in a small team it's trying to find the time to do everything which i i struggle with but through lessons learned in that book i have learned to outsource and to delegate and to try and where i can you know do the things that are most important or most get most bang for your buck if you like but it's funny you say that book well to be clear i've gone back and looked at the book and i I don't think it's aged well. Uh, I, I think Tim would probably agree, but I don't think it's aged well. And actually, I took away most of the lessons in that book, most of the advice in that book, most of the concrete stuff in that book. I never implemented, I never really agreed with, and I never got on with. But it didn't matter because the core message did stick with me and the core message did make a difference. The strategy makes sense, the tactics didn't. No, I, no, I think that's, that's a really valuable point because in the book he's talking about selling, um, uh, what they call like the energy pills, aren't they? And he, yeah. he was outsourcing this to this and he was getting them from here to there and drop shipping and the rest of it. And I think that's where a lot of people don't get the value out of the book because they, they as to what you say, it hasn't aged well. But that's not the point of the book. It's about looking at the methods he used and seeing how you can replicate them in your day-to-day -day life. And, you know, some work better than others. And it's also just opening your mind to the concept that maybe you can get paid enough with less work. Yep, yep. And too many people think the only way to make enough money is to work full-time. And how much money you make full-time is the amount of money you need to live. Yep. But I think maybe that's not true anymore. Maybe people realise it, but... So many people work full-time and don't get paid a living wage and are basically in poverty despite the fact they work their ass off all week long. Yeah. And so many people work hard all week long and and five times what they actually need and blow it all anyway and have nothing. Yep. And there is this other path where, like last year, I had a consulting gig that literally was paying my bills with four hours work a week. And I think I only even got to the stage of taking that contract and doing that work because my mind was open to the fact it was a possibility because of yep. books like that. No, I remember you saying about that. And I think that, again, it, yeah, so books like that create your awareness that opportunities like that are actually out there. Whereas most people probably wouldn't even believe that was possible. Or they wouldn't have charged enough yeah. to do it. Like, it's, it's all bound up in a lot of different beliefs there. But uh, I don't know. Uh, that's maybe that's another valuable lesson learned is you can charge based on the value you're creating and not just on the the time you're putting in um because you need that one in order to live the four hour work week right yeah. yep no i think it's a really good point about value over time i think a lot of people will and i know this and i won't mention the name of the person but they were they were looking at a consulting gig and they worked out about how much they wanted to earn on an hourly rate and they and they extrapolated it back out that way or reverse engineered the, the sort of the final amount and i had the exact same conversation with them i was like why why are you doing it that way rather than what it's worth and working it backwards and and it turned out that they got the consulting gig and they still didn't charge as much as i think they should have charged but they they got nearly double what they were putting out as an hourly rate yeah. um yeah it's, it's a value instead of time is a very different is a very good way to look at things and not a lot of people do that like if you're solving if you're solving a problem for someone or creating value for someone else then 
it's huge rather than actually paying yourself on a time basis. It doesn't really make sense to me. Yes, but it takes awareness and it takes preparation and it takes confidence because you need to know how much value you're creating for these people or what problem you're yep. solving. And you need to be confident enough to say, look, I mean, this is an example for one of my clients. I was like, I think if we do this work, it's going to save you 40 grand a okay. year. I'm only going to charge you five grand to do the work. It's only going to take me like three or four days, but I'm going to charge you five grand to do it. And it's going to pay for itself in spades every year. You're getting a massive return on investment here, like 8x return on investment in year yep. one. After that, it's just free money. Uh, I know this is expensive, but... I'm the only guy that can do it for you this way and you trust me already. That's why you're talking to me. So let's go. And it worked out and I got paid an insane amount of money for like four or five days work. Um, but you have to know how much money you're making them. You have to be confident enough to go and pitch it and stand your ground when they say, oh, that's a lot more than we normally pay. Uh, it's not easy. But uh, again, you need your mind to be open to the fact that's even possible because I think too many people go, oh, it's nuts. No one pays contractors that much money. And the answer is, well, they, they do in the right business cases. So if you get that opportunity, use it. I think, I think confidence is, I think, a huge part of that. And I guess one of my follow-ups would be then is, so where did you learn or how did you become confident in that decision? Because you are right. And, I, and I've experienced similar things myself. And I mean, funnily enough, I asked for more money once when I just didn't want the work. And I thought, oh, you know, at this price, I'm not interested. I just, so I put out a ridiculous amount and they came back and said, okay, fair enough. And that wasn't confidence as such. That was a bit more bluster and, you know, trying my luck. But where, where did you learn confidence to do that or, or get that? Because it's, it's an important skill, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, three things there. The first one is the voice in my head from my parents saying, you can do it. Yep. The second one is, I think, I'm not always the most self-confident person until I look back at, you know, what I've managed to do over the years or what's worked out for me. And then I can sort of believe in myself based on past performance in a way. So just okay. remembering past performance and trying to double down on that. Uh, and the last one is back to the whole financial freedom thing again. Like, I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not financially free. I need to earn money. But because I've kept my costs low, it's, I've never been in a situation, I'm so lucky to say this, right? I'm, I don't take this for granted, but I've never been in a situation where I have to take this piece of work right now or I'm in debt, right? Yeah. So knowing that if they say no, I can either renegotiate a lower price or just get some more work later makes it easy to make that pitch. Whereas if I feared that they were going to be offended and walk away and that was going to be the end of me and I'd be in credit card debt, mm -hmm. then I would have had a very different response, right? I wouldn't have risked it necessarily. For what it's worth, I don't think they would walk away for a high price. I think they'd just tell me it was too high and renegotiate. But despite that, I think it's worth mentioning I wouldn't have even dared to put such a high price if I was on the breadline. That's an interesting point, isn't it? So basically what you're saying is if money is an issue to you, you're going to undersell yourself nine times out of ten because you, you're desperate or really in need of those funds. Yeah, and it's one of the hundreds of ways that the rich get richer and people who are not fortunate from day one get screwed over over and over again, right? The world is harder when you have less money. The world is harder when you have less connections. Um, yeah. It's not fair in any way. Oh, it's a fascinating topic, isn't it? If it helps anyone hearing this and thinking, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Like, I did come from a background which was very working class in that respect. Like... I was the first person in my family to go to university. Um, my parents like 
uh, did office cleaning and dinner lady, uh, which is a British job where you like look after kids in the playground. You yeah. know, my, my family is not some posh rich family. I wasn't born to connections or money. I was born to love and confidence and support. And I was lucky in so many ways over the years. But so it's not that I can make these pictures because I was born into wealth, right? Yeah. But um, I do understand that if you don't have the money and you don't have the connections already, life is just harder. So that's part of confidence, right? Is you, you're, you're already winning. It's easier to keep winning when you're winning. Yeah. Is it, you know, it's, it's a fascinating topic and I feel like it could be discussed for hours. But I think there's some really valuable takeaways that people there can take from that from your answer you know just asking that little bit more it's funny i think the more you ask the more confident you get in asking and then you'll find that actually there'll be numbers you, you sort of have this fear of asking for and one day you'll ask for it and someone will go yeah no problem and then it's like just some some light bulb will go off in your head you go ah okay okay yeah and second time you don't think twice about asking it no you don't and the person on the other end of the conversation is looking at it differently, is looking at the value proposition, going, right, I can hire this person, or this person can do this for me. I know it's going to cost me whatever, but they're not looking at that. They're, they're looking at what they're going to get from it. You're rarely taking money out of their pocket. Yeah, indeed. So tell me, Ben, what's one of the best decisions you've ever made? That is an easy one. It's one that led to another. Um, again, massive privilege and luck is what let me make this decision. But the best decision I ever made was taking a year of paternity leave when my first child was born. Uh, I was only able to do this because of a combination of uh, a few good things, right? In the UK, there's this law where between the two parents, you can take a year of leave when you have a child. Uh, yeah. And traditionally, that's basically all the mum and the dad gets two weeks. Um, that's the way it works by default. But legally, it doesn't have to. The thing is, right, most women need... A lot more than two weeks or four weeks or six weeks or whatever to recover after uh, giving birth and also again traditionally more women want to stay home than the men so it just ends up sticking there as the status quo uh, but my wife was uh, at a stage in her career where she was ready to change jobs anyway and we found out there's a loophole in this law where if the woman like quits her job after a month of maternity leave she can give the other 11 months to the father anyway doesn't matter that she's quit her job. She was entitled to 12 months and therefore she remains entitled to 12 months and therefore she can transfer it to the father under that other law. So basically using this framework, my wife quit her job after one month of maternity leave, gave me the other 11 months and that meant that both of us were off for the first year of my daughter's life. She because she was between jobs and me because I was on parental leave. Um, easily the best thing I ever did. That's really interesting. Cause I think I think quite, it's quite a new thing, isn't it? The the shared parental yeah. leave, and you, you used an interesting phrase, the status quo. And I look back when my my daughter was first daughter was born. Part of me is kicking myself that I didn't take longer. I took the I took the standard two weeks, and but yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sticking on the status quo term because it was the status quo is the the man doesn't take that much long. But actually hearing you say that and I've heard other stories where people have gone down maybe not taken quite a year off but have taken longer off or have gone down to four day weeks um, to spend more time and it is cliche because you don't get that time back and you know part of me I think if I was to do things again I would do that and I, I'm envious that you got to do that because I think it's important isn't it do you think you got a better bond with your with your kid uh, as a result I do I absolutely do um, and again I, I'm not 
this is a place, place of privilege. It's only because we could afford to do it and my wife was willing to quit her job, right? So there's a lot of things that had to be in place for this. But yeah, I can't imagine what my relationship with my daughter would be like if I hadn't been there with her for that year. Yeah. But I'm so grateful for it. Uh, and when I went back to work after that first year, I went from spending like five to eight hours a day with her to spending 10 minutes before work before I got on the train and 10 minutes after work when I got off the train. Yeah. Uh, so I saw her 20 minutes a day and it just destroyed me. And that gave me the push to quit my job because I was deeply unhappy with my work and not because of the work, but because of not seeing my daughter. Um, so like you say, you don't get that time back. Not everyone will have that opportunity, but whatever opportunity you do have to take with kids, like I'd recommend taking it because yeah. the worst case scenario is you find out that you don't enjoy it and you want to go back to work and that's fine, right? I'm not saying anyone has to enjoy time with their kids, but give it a try. <laughs> um, and the best case is it's, it's this wonderful thing that you only get to do one, two, three times. Yeah. I, I, funny enough, I, the kicker for me quitting my job and going and going to work myself was also the same reason, doing the same thing, commuting and not yeah. seeing her. And I just thought I just didn't want to do that. And again, I, like you, I feel very privileged that I was in a position to do that. And I think, I guess the way I'll, I'll, I'll finish this is I think that, okay, you don't need to take a year off, but even now with a shared leave, you can take a lot more Absolutely. than two weeks off. And I think that, and, and you know, that's available to everyone. I think, you know, there are obviously there's financial implications and I, I totally understand that. But I think that the way the way it is now, you can take a lot longer off and all right, it might not be a full year, but you could probably get a full month or two months or something. And I think you, you balance that out with your wife or your partner, girlfriend, whatever it is. And I think, yeah, that that's what I look back on with a little bit of a little bit of regrets. I think, oh, even if it's been like two or three months, yeah, it's it's tough because it's but it's hard because the status quo is people you feel like you're gonna frown people like frown upon it or you know it's gonna do your career harm or all this nonsense. I, I, I'll put that out there. It did my career harm. I got back and this is a company that supported me massively. So this is when I was working at Google and I want to be very clear about this. Google supported this completely. My manager supported it completely. It was, they did all the right things. This is not anything against Google. This is more that I experienced something that generally only women experience, which is what does it mean when you take a year's gap in your career and you get back and it turns out that everyone else has spent a year continuing to progress and you've lost your year of progress and you've lost your status. And all of a sudden, people that were junior to you are now senior to you. People that were senior to you have moved on. People you had relationships with have forgotten you or aren't there anymore or whatever. And again, this is nothing to do with the company approach. This is about like interpersonal relationships and status and monkey brain stuff, right? What do our monkey brains perceive on who is the alpha of the tribe and all this kind of stuff? Uh, and I just, I think I experienced what it was like to no, that's not fair, but I, I experienced some of what it was like to come back after a year of maternity leave. And now I've got a lot more empathy for how difficult that decision is and how much yeah. society penalises women for taking time off to look after the kids for a year or two. Uh, it's, it's really significant. Yeah, it is. really is. Moving on to the next question, then. tell me something you struggle with. Trying to be everything to everyone. I really struggle. I think I've felt this most since becoming a dad. Like I want to be a present dad who's always there with his kids. I want to give my wife the support yep. 
because she still she actually chose not to go back to work. She cho- she chose to continue looking after the kids even now and and is loving it, which we didn't necessarily expect, right? We thought maybe she'd be back in the office after a, after that maternity leave, but she's decided she loves it, right? But I want to be there to help her and make her life easier because it turns out being a full time parent is is way harder than the majority of of office jobs. <laughs> Uh, at least so I want to support her I want to be a good dad Uh, I also want to focus on my business and grow my business and be a good business partner to my co-founder I want a bit of time to myself I want to get good at running I want to you know all these different things Uh, and I really struggle with the fact that I don't have time to be as good at everything as I want to be I don't have time to look after myself and to look after these people around me as well as I want to Uh, and I have to like just drop things to make that happen I have to prioritize it took such a long time to come to terms with that after after becoming a father, but here we are. When when you're prioritising, where do you find you're putting stuff on the hierarchy? Where does Ben come into that as opposed to your wife, your kids, your co-founder, friends, family and stuff? Kids first, unless the wife is really struggling, at which point wife first, because you know, she's yep. the person who makes the magic happen and needs to feel successful. After that, it's my sleep, <laughs> because if I don't get enough sleep, I fail at everything i'm just a bad husband yep. father worker then it's work then it's running or exercise and those two sometimes switch positions and the thing that got dropped is like me time i don't have me time except for exercise now and that made me pretty yep. unhappy while i was still fully employed because i felt like i was serving those around me correctly like correct prioritization i was keeping myself sane in my you know physical health just about but I wasn't making yep. myself happy. Um, and again, this is where quitting my job both gave me more time with my kid, but also meant that when I'm working, I now feel like it's me time. Like because I'm working on something I'm yep. passionate about and I enjoy what I'm doing and I'm building a business for myself, all of a sudden I am giving to me during the day. So at this point, I'm feeling sort of happier and more balanced than ever. But for a long time, because I was at the bottom of that chain, I often wasn't particularly happy with you know my internal fulfillment. It's been really difficult designing a life where I can try and do better at all of those things at once. No, I, I'm, I'm totally with you. There's a lot of similarities there between my, my thoughts and yours. I, it took me a long time to acclimatise to having kids and trying to work and trying to do everything that I wanted to do in life. But your priorities do change and you know you do have to be a little bit but yeah, it took me a long time and I couldn't, I couldn't get my head around the fact that I could no longer do this thing, this thing, this thing. And, yeah. and there were, <sighs> resentment's a strong word, but there's a little, a little bit of me was thinking, oh my, what have I done? I, I think more, more people need to talk about this, right? That this is really important mm. that you said the words, oh, priorities change when you have kids. And they do, yeah. but everyone sort of assumes that means your priorities change and you're okay with it. And that's not true at all like the resentment is is real right like your priorities change and you're doing the right thing for your wife and your kids or your partner and your kids whatever but that doesn't mean you don't resent the loss of some of your old life or some of your old time it takes a long time to come to terms with that it does and i I think you're 100 percent right i don't think people do talk about it enough and i think that you know obviously people believe i love your kids and i do love my kids dearly but it doesn't mean it's not difficult coming to terms with that. I mean, it's a huge change to your life. Yeah. And it was particularly for me, I was, what was I, 39 when I had my first daughter. That's 39 years of habit of just being number one focus is Chris. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Do I want to watch the football on a Sunday? Do I want to go to the pub? Do I want to go for a run? Do I, you know, I didn't have to get, ask anyone. I didn't have to um, get permission for anything. 
Absolutely. And it's a huge shift in, in, in life. Yes. And it's not just about getting permission from other people. It's about getting permission from yourself, right? That is it okay that I'm going to spend time on this instead of looking after my kids or helping mm. out my partner? Or and not feel guilty about exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. So difficult. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's another interesting topic, which I think is important. And I mean, you know, you, you, I have, I don't want to say I've come to terms with it because that sounds negative in itself, but I have adapted now and my priorities have changed and what I, you know, enjoy doing now compared to what I enjoyed doing previously is different. And I do make time for myself and my wife and I are very, you know, keen on this is we we try it's not always easy but we try to find time is like right if i want to go for a run or i want to go to somewhere or she wants to do something or go with her friends or go for a run or whatever we we try our hardest to make sure that we get our time because it comes back to being and and the previous guest said this analogy it's about like the oxygen mask in the plane you know you have to look after yourself first or everything else crumbles around you doesn't it absolutely absolutely Giving each other time is so important and it's, uh, I think a lot of people think every free moment you should spend in family time or whatever, but no, you've got to look after yourself as well. Sleep for me was the killer there. If I yeah. don't get enough sleep because I've stayed up late like an idiot working on side projects or because my I've got up early with the kids five days in a row and had a bad night or whatever, I'm just the worst person. And I'm not talking about getting, oh, I need my eight hours because I can't remember the last time I got eight hours, right? But I just mean the more the merrier no. and the closer you get to that, the better. And I think it's okay to accept the, like your limitations and to look after yourself so that you can be a better person to those around you. No, it is. And I think people underestimate the power of sleep. And I mean, I don't know if it's the same for you, but I know that if I don't get enough sleep, I'm A, very crabby, very ratty and my work suffers my diet suffers my exercise suffers and then it just becomes this vicious circle of like it just doesn't get better anytime yeah. quick and i think that is all rooted in sleep i mean diet in in particular is horrendous when i when i have lack of sleep you know those sugar cravings just <laughs> <laughs> scream at you come eat me come eat me it's all it's real but yeah it is real okay the next question i got is an interesting one and it's particularly interesting to you so for those who don't know you you're very active on twitter you're very good at sharing your world and your life with people you know whether that's professional personal whatever and it's something that a lot of people admire of you myself included and how you go about doing that but it leads me to wonder do you think people's perception of you is accurate mostly but it's missing the key part which is think people think i'm more confident and connected and outgoing and extroverted than i am because I, I spend a lot of time revving up for things and gearing up for things and trying to get confidence and get get ready for it. I, I self-doubt a lot. Uh, I, I dread meetings with people that I haven't really spoken to properly before or to pitch something new. If you talk to me at a party or not that I go to parties anymore, I've got kids, right? But if you talk to me in a bar <laughs> or a party or a, a barbecue, like I think I'm quite an awkward conversationalist. Uh, and none of that really comes okay. through while tweeting or talking in an interview style or whatever. Like you only see the the one that has a little bit more thought or preparation or that comes out yeah. uh, as a nice soundbite. Uh, and even conversations like this, like I feel like I'm. So we know each other a little bit, Chris, right? So, yeah. But but I still feel a little bit like I'm in a meeting at work, right, where I'm presenting a little bit. And that flicks okay. a switch in my head that lets me talk and act in a certain way that I wouldn't, like this isn't necessarily my natural 
speech. Like I'd like it to be, right? This is how I want to be. And I can turn it on for short times, but it's not my natural state of being. So I think people uh, probably assume that I am, you know, better connected, more confident, so on than I actually am. And really I'm just bumbling along, making the best of the fact I'm super lucky. Okay. So talk me through the process of when you're going to tweet something. Generally, uh, something, a thought will be rattling around my head or something will happen that will make me particularly happy or surprised or whatever. And then I'll just try and find a way to express that to the world. Okay. So one tweet that did quite well recently was, my son is 14 months old now and it's only quite recently that I felt like he, I get the love that, that mummy gets and he'll come up and give me spontaneous hugs. And there was a course of like two days where I noticed that I was getting spontaneous hugs for the first time yeah. or that he would like come to me instead of his mum or whatever it was. And I thought, wow, this is so like, this is special. And this is something that I remember happening with my, my daughter at a similar age. And I thought, I didn't know this was a thing, right? I didn't know that dads go through this. But in my personal life, I've spoken to some people and found out that almost every dad goes through at least a year, if not a lot longer, mm-hmm. where they don't get the same love and attention back, right? So I was trying to, whenever I notice something like that, I try and find a way of capturing it and expressing it in a way that that maybe surprises people or, or tells them something new. And it turns out that, in my experience at least, so much happens to us every day that we never talk about. Yeah. I don't know if this is about a modern I think part of the modern world or if this has always been true but there are so many experiences emotionally that I didn't know to expect but actually once you talk about it everyone has had them and I'm just trying to capture some of that men or people in general people in general but that might be a function of the fact I'm a man right like yeah. uh, as in um, maybe these conversations all happen and they all happen between women but I kind of doubt that as well right I, I don't believe that there's a whole set of conversation that never ha- involves men but so, I don't know, as a man, I've experienced this, that there's a lot of stuff that we don't talk about. Of course. I suspect it affects both sexes and potentially men slightly worse because of social norms there. But, but this isn't just like an emotional dadhood thing either, right? This is the same in business. Yeah. There are so many things that have surprised me about my business life and what happens to me day to day building a business that actually I'm sure must be true for basically every single entrepreneur ever who goes through these, these, these experiences. But just you didn't, you didn't, talk about them or they didn't end up in a book or you didn't read the book they were in so i just try and capture these things that surprise me and share them so that other people you know are are less surprised when it happens to them or feel less alone okay but why do you do it the reason i say that is because you you said earlier about oh you know if i spoke to you at a party you you wouldn't be that communicative or whatever like i'm making assumption then so you're saying basically you're a little bit introverted but then on twitter you're yeah extroverted i think so i think because i like being more extroverted and I kind of want to be more extroverted like if I could talk like that uh, and, and sort of bring the responses I get on Twitter in normal conversations and, and share these things naturally mm. I'd be quite happy with that so why do I do it I do it because it's a bit more of who I want to be in a way okay and also I think I started my Twitter account again just because I felt like it was going to bring me interesting opportunities and connections with people yeah and actually, I found that is true, but that's true not by doing like the cookie cutter bullshit that everyone repeats. It's true by actually giving people something to connect with. Yeah. So if I'm sharing actual experience and actually interesting things, then hopefully I can make those connections and meet people and end up having conversations like this. Yeah. No, I, I yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. I think social media in general, I'm not just going to say Twitter, but I think social media in general gets quite a bad rep sometimes. But I think if you, depending on what you put out, is also results in what you get back and i think that that yeah it's been i mean 
you know, I, I look at your Twitter journey. I think it's amazing. And I think I, I aspire to be more like you. And I think it's funny that you probably don't appreciate how people do that because you're quite self um, unassuming. I'm, I'm surprised every time someone says it to me. Yeah, I do think it's a bit mad. Um, uh, yeah, I'm surprised when people say that. I'm, I'm grateful to you and I feel you know, honoured to hear it. But it surprises me, right? Because really, I don't know. I think the reason I use Twitter now is because so much of building a business and having kids and all this kind of stuff is and working remotely is quite a lonely experience. But it yeah. doesn't have to be because there are literally millions of people going through exactly the same thing as me. And mm. if I tweet about it, it turns out I'm not alone at all. I'm actually quite connected and I'm actually quite one of many. And, you know, my Twitter family is a bit like a Twitter family, right? Yeah. There's people there that I've been having nice chats with forever. And, yeah, I like it. No, it's good. It's, it's nice to have a story that's positive about social media. You know, everyone likes to jump on the bandwagon of putting the boot in on social media and how it's a negative impact. But I, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of negativity out there. I know that. But there's also a lot of positivity. And I think this depends what you're looking for is what you find. Yes. And it depends what you what you put out there as well. Yeah. Uh, I don't engage in the drama. I don't engage in the politics or the bullshit for the most part. Um, not saying it's wrong to do that, but that wouldn't bring me happiness. No. And uh, so I stay away from it. Okay. So nice segue then. So talking about happiness, tell me something you're passionate about. I would have said running if you'd asked me a year ago, because I've, you know this, Chris, yeah. but uh, I've been running every day. At one point, I was running every day for five years. Uh, I didn't miss a day where I was running at least a mile every day, five years. Um, this was whether I was going on a transatlantic flight, whether I was having a kid, whether I was getting married, uh, always ran, found that 10 minutes or more a day to run. Uh, and running has changed my life, absolutely. So let's run with it, yeah. Uh, I would have said that a year ago, so let's stick with it now, right? Running is something I've hated as a kid. Uh, was terrible at when I was 22 and I was literally obese. And at some point when I was on my weight loss journey, I started running every day or started running and then eventually started running every day. And the mental clarity, the physical fitness, the well-being it's given me has changed my life. No, I'm totally on board with that. And I, I owe you a, a huge gratitude that you will never know. Is, and again, for people who aren't aware, I, I, we, we connected before, but we, we sort of connected on this everyday running thing. And I think back in November, you started the Everyday Runners Club. I joined up and like you, running was never really a thing for me. I used to do it a little bit. It was before my wife. I hadn't run in in years and years and years and I met my wife who was a keen runner and I started running a bit more park runs I would say changed my life initially but then if you'd have told me back in October that a chat with you a random chat with you would lead to me running every day and I did it for I think it was 83 days before I got COVID and now I'm back to I'm 65 days now so you know 150 plus odd days is insane that is incredible it's incredible you should be very proud of that. I am very proud of it. And I, but it's down to you, which you may or may not be aware of or care about. But it's... I do. I'm it, very proud of that. It's funny how you... The, the, going back to your story earlier about the recruiter, it's funny how these random people in your life have such an effect that you, you just sort of, I don't know, take for granted sometimes. It's incredible. But it's a great passion to, uh, to have. And I think, uh, yeah, happy days. If anyone has ever thought about running and wanted to take it up and never quite made the leap, I would absolutely encourage you to just try and start. It might be couch to 5K where you start like the 5K gradual process of getting towards being able to run for that. 
30, 40 minute period. Maybe it's just going out for 10 minutes on your own. Um, I don't know, but try some plans, connect with people, like go for it. Yeah, that that is the key takeaway, I think. So I, I've tried running streaks before and I tried one and it was like, right, I'm going to run 5K every day, which let's say is give or take half an hour. But I did it for, I think, seven or eight days and then my, my knee blew up because I just wasn't fit enough, good enough for runners to do it. But I think one of the key takeaways, which was a game changer, was your minimum of a mile rule. Now, depending on how fast you are, it could be anything from what, like five or six minutes up to 10 or 12 minutes. But why it's key and was key for me was because it meant that if I felt like I was overdoing it or I didn't quite have enough time, knowing that I only had to run a mile as opposed to had to run 5K or 10K or whatever you know arbitrary number was there was the game changer. Because it meant that, absolutely. It meant that if my ankle was feeling a little bit not quite right, I only had to do a mile. And you know, if it had got worse, then obviously I would have stopped. But and when you're feeling good, you can run longer. And I think that exactly. that is that's the rule that changes everything. So uh, just to be clear, anyone who's not a runner already, I wouldn't recommend that you start yes. a running streak to begin with, even at one mile a day, because it's too much for someone who's not accustomed to it. But if you're uh, someone who's been running. 5k three times a week for years or whatever then you're in a state to do this and yes yep. it changes everything to have this mile a day thing if you're like me and i think like chris where this is true right you're someone who habit and consistency is critical for you to to achieve things right you need to do the same thing every day we've seen this with your 30 day challenges right yeah um for me that's the same if i do something every day i just do it without thinking and that means i get the compounding benefits without any willpower or effort so yep. for me, setting this one mile minimum run a day meant that I would be running every day without any effort mentally to prepare or to make it happen. Like I would just find a way to do it. And it means that most of the time when you're out there for 10 minutes, you actually have fun or you've got more time or you're feeling better or you're feeling healthy and you end up running more and you've done 2000 miles in a year before you know it. It can really stack up. So uh, this is true, I think, in a lot of cases in my life, like just daily consistency. If I can find a way to make something stick and easy, it will change yep. me forever. Um, and with running, that was just such a good reward. Yeah, and it's funny how quick it goes from being a chore or something you have to find 10 minutes to do that becomes hard work to just being part and part of day life. Like it gets to the point now, my, my wife will be like, oh, you haven't done your run yet, or you're going for your run. Like it's, it's as something as habitual as brushing your teeth or, you know, taking your kids to school or whatever, and it's, but it's amazing how quickly it becomes part of your life. Whereas before you start, you think, yeah. oh, I've got to run every day. Oh, got to get my shoes, got to get my, blah, 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 all this sort of stuff. And it's, yeah, it's. Yeah. I think it takes between three to five weeks, I think, before the tipping point. But but there's huge lessons to be learned there from introducing other things into your life, which, you know, could make significant improvements. Or or just something you want to try, but you, you, you know, you're not convinced about, but just gets you over that hurdle if you commit to 30 days like i didn't start my five-year streak thinking i was going to run every day for five years because that's bonkers i thought i'd start for 30 days and see how it goes uh, and if i had got to the end of it and still not enjoyed it after 30 days i'd have dropped it and i'd have done something different and that would have been okay right but yeah. it turns out it did stick with me how, how much and i guess it's maybe it's a tough question to answer i don't know but how much do you think you're running improved from day one to day 500 uh, massively but I don't know how much of it was about the streak and how much of it was about other training I did okay um, the main thing that I'm sure improved is recovery from injury and like resistance to injury yeah 
before my streak, I, I ran a few marathons and half marathons. But like when I ran a marathon, it took me, my first one I think was four hours and 15 minutes, which is like quite a respectable first time marathon. But after yep. that, I basically didn't move for two weeks because I was recovering. <laughs> and actually all that meant was that every muscle in my lower body tightened up. And when I started running again, I very quickly got injured um, because I'd stiffened up and healed up in all the wrong ways. Yeah. A few years ago, three years into my running streak, I ran a relay race where I ended up doing 104 kilometers in 24 hours. So yeah. that's like 65 miles in, in 24 hours. Uh, and I ran the next day, of course, because I was on a running streak. And I ran the next day because I was on a running streak. And I didn't get injured. And I've done a three-hour, five-minute marathon, three-hour, four-minute marathon, and not been injured. And again, I put these things down to the fact that I never stopped moving. My body didn't think at any point, okay, I don't need to do this anymore. My body always knew it needed to get back running. It needed to be able to continue to do this. And God, it feels awful for the first 10 minutes after you've you know, done a marathon to go for your next run the next day. Yeah. But then you've loosened everything up again and you keep going. So it really did improve recovery and resilience and that improved running overall. Do you know, I, I had a snowboarding instructor when I was in my, I don't know, early 20s or something. And he said something to me that stuck with me that supports exactly what he said. And he, he said, uh, motion is lotion. And he used to say it all the time. You know, I'd be aching and my, my hamstrings would be aching every time I'm trying to get up. And he's like, motion is lotion, motion is lotion. And it's the same thing. And I agree with you. Yeah, it's a, a terrible phrase, but the takeaway is key. You're like, yes, yeah. keep moving and it helps you out a lot. Indeed, indeed. I, do, I want to take a little bit of a different tack now. Just tell me about some of the content you consume, favorite content to consume. I know, obviously, time is, is of the essence to you, uh, business, kids, wife, etc. But what, what's your go-to content if uh, when you get your spare five minutes? While I was still employed, it would have been business books it would have been you know, the the lean startup your four-hour work week what else have i got on the shelf rework <laughs> like all of those classics uh, yeah. to basically escape and dream about the day where i'd be an entrepreneur uh but now i, I find i just better cracking on with work so what content do i consume and love uh sci-fi novels i read so much sci-fi um, okay mostly because i can have it on my phone and i can just read it in 10 minute snatches here and there if I'm standing in a dark room because I'm not allowed to leave the room yet because my daughter's asleep but she'll wake up if I leave I can read in the dark for a few minutes or whatever so I read a lot of sci-fi and that started with going down like the award lists of like the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award and so on and finding ones that had won lots of awards but okay. these days uh, I just go off recommendations but I, I yeah I love sci-fi and have you always loved sci-fi? Yeah, yeah, always, since I was a kid. Um, okay. Always loved sci-fi. I, I don't think I read sci-fi novels as a kid. I, I would read I would read voraciously as a kid, but it would have been everything, including fantasy and sci-fi, but also not. I've always been a big sci-fi game and sci-fi theme and sci-fi uh, like TV shows have been my hit. Okay. But as I've got older, it's, it's all about the novels. Okay, so for someone like myself who has probably never read a sci-fi book, what would be your one initial recommendation to get me into... It's a horrible question. It's a horrible question and I apologise. Yeah. Because good sci-fi, I think so much of it is good because you already have some understanding of the tropes or the what's normal and what's not or what to expect. My favourite kind of sci-fi is the kind of sci-fi that you would hate probably as someone who's not come into it before. Because I love sci-fi that throws you into the deep end. Okay. And for the first 20 pages, you don't really know what's going on and you're kind of building it and piecing it together in your head. And they're piecing together okay. of the world that they are, are 
living in is part of the journey. But I imagine that's horrible for someone who doesn't have a sci-fi love already. So what is the good starting point? Maybe starting with The Expanse novels. So anyone who's watched The Expanse TV show, um, there's a series of novels that goes with it. And it was a big Amazon Prime TV show um, that I think is still running, actually. It's maybe on series six or something. But that comes from okay. a nine-book uh, series. So reading the first one of those and seeing what you think about it, it's kind of, yeah, close enough to reality in modern day that you don't feel completely alienated. Um, okay. if you like it there's more to read and uh, if you like it but you can't be bothered to read it you can go watch the TV show okay I will get that on my Kindle as soon as I'm off with you and we'll see, we'll see how we go okay final question for you Ben when you think about the future what do you see? do you want this on the personal level or on the global level? like this was a big question it is a big question and I've deliberately left it open for interpretation okay. by guests <laughs> okay on the personal level, I'm looking forward to a long, healthy life with my family, um, staying self-employed forever um, or entrepreneurial forever, um, and basically continuing to carry on on the path I've put myself on over the last few years of increasing levels of freedom and independence and designing a life where me and my family can be happy. Yep. So that's what I'm looking forward when I see. But I thought when you asked this, though, I was thinking, like, okay, so what about globally? Like, what do I see there? Uh, and I'm actually a real positivist. Oh, optimist is the word I'm looking for there, right? <laughs> I think the world is going to improve massively along with my own life in the future. We might have some political turbulence and some ups and downs. I think the last 10 years of politics has told us that we don't know what to expect and there are going to be some horrors. Um, yep. But overall, I think by the time I die, I think we'll be approaching like a post-scarcity society where there's abundant energy and food and fuel and tech has solved so many problems in the world whether that's you know farming whether that's space exploration like lab meat so that we can carry on eating meat without slaughtering animals like i think that advances in ai technology and engineering are going to improve the world and i don't just mean that in the sense that like oh, i'm a tech bro who thinks that software is going to make life better i mean mm -hmm. in the sense of like i know it's controversial but like the musk landing rockets right now spacex reusing rockets i don't care what people think about elon musk or not it's irrelevant like the fact that there's a company now which is landing rockets and reusing them tens and 20 times is changing now how yep. we can think about space for the future yeah things like open ai and the dali and the gdp3 gtp3 and networks like that show us that like ai creativity is changing everything the advances with like machine learning to power fusion and things like that is changing everything so i think some of the hard tech not the stuff that i do but the stuff that real scientists and engineers are doing is going to make the world a better place over the next 50 to 100 years and i think it will make the world a better place for everyone irrespective of like whatever terrible political things we have to deal with in the meantime that is a uh, an unbelievably good answer to finish on <laughs> well <tried. laughs> Um, have you have you always been a positive person? I think I've always been a, an optimist. I think this comes from my my brand of sci-fi that I like. I like the optimistic sci-fi. My favourite sci-fi series of all time is one that I wouldn't recommend to a beginner necessarily, but is Ian M. Banks has got a series called The Culture, which okay. is effectively like the future, where AIs run everything for you and humans basically live effectively like a heavenly existence of doing what they want, and. There's, the series is about the interaction of them with people who haven't entered this sort of utopian society yet and how they all try to help others to live in a great future as well. Anyway, um, okay. the long and short of it is I think there's a lot of 
positivity out there if you can find it and there's a lot of reasons to be positive about what technology and science can do for the world and yeah, yeah I've been I've been an optimist for a long time good to hear and uh, long may it continue Ben I really appreciate you taking your time this morning I know you're busy uh, with everything where can people find you come say hello give you feedback ask you questions yeah find me at twitter.com slash ben barbersmith but uh, in the event that twitter disappears or elon musk sucks it into a black <laughs> hole or whatever barbersmith.com um is is my personal website um where you can find what i'm working on what i'm doing and so on excellent ben thank you so much and i shall speak to you soon cheers chris thank you very much well 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 that was 10q interview with mr ben barbersmith if you made it to this point thank you i hope you enjoyed it i'm sure you did hence why you're here feel free to share any thoughts on the episode with via any of your social channels at 10q interview everywhere that's all from me for now make sure you subscribed hit that subscribe button now if you haven't hit follow if you haven't wherever you're listening to this you know what to do and the next 10q interview podcast will be live very very soon thank you speak to you soon bye